I know some of y'all are members of the club. I'm a member of the club, Sam's Club. My wife and I would turn to each other after church sometimes and be like, do you want to go to the club for lunch? I'll tell you about the club at lunch. You can get like three pieces of pizza, five hot dogs, some ice cream, buy drinks for everyone, and it's like four bucks. I'm not talking about per person. I'm like the whole thing, you know. And so, we, I, but you know, my wife typically does the shopping at Sam's Club. I, I don't, I don't, I don't go. I, I don't. There's not usually times that I need 48 bars of soap or you know, like 18 gallons of pickles or anything like that. But she said, you know, the other day, oh my gosh, I forgot to do this. I'm working on something. Can you go by Sam's Club and get something? And and I, and I literally called her up and I was like, what, what's the protocol? They're like, well, just make sure you got your your card and and you know, you know the rest. And so, I, all right, I got it. And so. I'm looking through my wallet and my Sam's Club is behind about four expired hunting licenses and things like that. And so finally get the Sam's Club card and I get in there, go in. Of course, you got to flash it at the thing and make sure your ID matches and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm there and then I don't know where anything is in Sam's Club. I can't find anything. I'm like, I'm like, sweetheart, in the middle, there's all this Appalachian clothes. Did you, did you want a shirt? She's like, no, go back to this place. And so anyway. Find it. Of course, there's there's no bags at Sam's Club. You just get, either get a big shopping cart, and then at the end you just have this stuff, and you gotta like carry it out. And so, I'm I'm checking out, and I've I've got to pay with this card and pay with that card, and then I see that you can get an 89 cent fountain drink on the way out the door, and I got so excited. I don't know why, but I got so excited for the 89 cent fountain drink, and so I've got this big box full of stuff because of course they don't have you know. They don't have any bags, and so I'm balancing this off like a waiter, and you know, I've got all this stuff over here, and I've got my big Diet Dr. Pepper over here, and I just go cruise out the door. Now, if you know the Sam's Club, you know that I just did a major no-no, because at Sam's Club, you can't just cruise out the door. You have to do what? Show them your receipt. Well, your pastor 50 yards into the parking lot gets called down by the security at Sam's Club this past week. Sir, sir, please come back. What are you talking about? I'm, I keep going. Then, then I hear the footsteps behind me, and I'm like, what in the world is going on? And like, sir. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, the receipt. Well, of course, the receipt's in my back pocket. I've got my big orange drink. Well, Andy Griffith, i got my big Dr. Pepper, and i got this. I can't get to it. So I have to go to the back of someone else's car, set my stuff down in their car. They come. They're like, what are you doing in my car? I'm like, it just gets worse. Pulling out my receipt, handing it to them. Finally, you know, I, I get back to the car and I text Danielle and I said, I forgot about the receipt. And she says, is everything okay? And I was like, it is now. <laughs> but you know what? At Sam's Club, there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way. There's not a way that you feel like doing it and, and then the Sam's Club way. There's the Sam's Club way and there's no way at all. Similarly, Jesus Christ tells us today, there's the way through the cross and then there's the wrong way. There's the way that involves the cross, and then there's not the way. There's the way that involves me carrying the cross, and then there's the wrong way. There's the way that involves you carrying the cross, and there's the wrong way. And then there's the kingdom that is only coming through the cross, and then there's the wrong way. And there's the right way and the wrong way, and the right, the right way goes through the cross. And so when we get to verses 27 through 30 here in this text, 
We need to come to the place where we look at where the disciples are and they have been steeped in the tradition that the Messiah when he comes is going to be nothing less than a military conqueror. Think Alexander the Great on steroids. You know, He is going to be the conqueror supreme. Not only that, but if, if we reflect even on things like Psalm 69 where David's talking about just the, this new second coming and the Messiah is just even going to crush these people and, and going to take away and erase their names from the book of life and things like that. This idea of the Messiah was this massive military hero. And so Jesus then says, the question of all questions, who do you say that I am? Now that is the most important question in the entire world. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Not who do other people say, not who does this nation say, not what do you think the Bible says, but who do you say? And Peter, of course, answers this question, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And it is only after Peter's confession of that truth that then we come to the text where Peter, where Paul, excuse me, where Jesus comes back and says to Peter and the other disciples what is getting ready to happen to him and what his kingdom as the Messiah is really going to be like. And so in verse 31, if you've got your Bible, go and we'll go through these verses. Only once Jesus, is declared, Jesus has been declared the Messiah can now he share his plan. So verse 31, he shares his plan. And notice that his plan is completely contradictory to what his disciples probably think he's going to do. Jesus at this point, when he's talking about that he's going to be led away, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be talked down upon by, by the religious, religious leaders, he's saying all this just to his disciples at this point, just to his disciples. And all of these statements, given that they thought that the Messiah was going to come and be this military leader that was going to crush everyone, that was going to revamp and revitalize and lift up the nation of Israel, he destroys all of that. And these statements must have seemed outlandish to them because of their expectations. And so in verse 32, I want you to stop and look at verse 32 and I want you to repeat these three things to yourself number one Peter interrupts God number two Peter seeks to correct God and number three Peter insists on well-intentioned things that are actually the voice of Satan I never I, just, I didn't quite grasp that Peter is attempting to correct God to, to interrupt God, and then to counsel God. And as Jesus correctly points out, Peter is echoing the very verse of Satan, very voice of Satan. So in verse 33, Jesus' rebuke comes. And it is not a light rebuke, it is a strong rebuke. Jesus' rebuke, and he's rebuking him because he's saying, Peter, within you is the voice of Satan. Now listen, what Satan was saying to Jesus was true. What Satan was saying through Peter was true. Jesus, you can have a kingdom that doesn't involve the cross. You can have a kingdom that doesn't involve the cross. Realize that this is also the last and third temptation that you see in the book of Matthew, chapter 4. The last and third temptation is, bow down before me. You can have all this as a kingdom without the cross. And so Peter says the same thing to him, get out of here, because without the cross there is no salvation. So verse 34 Notice that all throughout Mark, we've read before, there were crowds that were following Jesus. Jesus tried to get away from the crowds. There are crowds that were trying to get to Jesus. Jesus tried to get away from the crowds. Jesus, seeking to do a healing, takes the blind man away, takes the mute and deaf man away from the crowds. But notice at this point in time what happens. Jesus calls the crowds in verse 34 to them. He now invites them to hear. And what does he now invite them to hear? The least appealing sales pitch ever. You know, speaking of Sam's, what's the greatest thing that Sam's does? Gives out free samples, right? 
My wife and I, sometimes we just skip dinner and we go over there and we're like, let's see what the free samples are. Hopefully we'll be full by the time. We don't have to feed our daughter either. Well, they make it appealing, but notice that Jesus calls the crowd over to them and then he begins to tell them the least appealing things ever. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny your selfish ambition, take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. And notice that he says the cross. The cross to us, we've got them all over the place. We've got them all over the place. Some we wear them as jewelry, but the cross was offensive, vulgar, and shameful. So he's inviting them to something that is base on the most base level. And then not only that, he's telling them, follow me, which is the implication. I'm not calling you to do anything that I'm not going to do myself. So in verse 35, he then says, if you try to keep your life for yourself, what does that keeping of a life look like? Keeping of your life is kind of like keeping your talent for yourself. We know that when you have a talent, even in the parable of the talents, the only way that it is really actually used is to give it away, to use it. And then by using it and giving it away, what? It's enhanced and things are blessed. Others are blessed. And so he says, just like that, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. It is only by giving it away. And in this divine exchange, you're going to give me what is meager. Your life is meager. But in return, you're going to get my glory and you're going to get salvation. Then verse 36 He also reminds us of a tough truth. In verse 36, he reminds us that it is absolutely possible to have a humanly admirable life that absolutely mortgages eternity in exchange. A humanly admirable life that mortgages eternity in exchange. It's the idea of trading eternity for the moment. Trading eternity for the moment. And then verse 37, he says this whole idea of, we, we even say right now, how much is your soul worth? What's your soul worth? And we would go, I don't even know how to put a price tag on that. And Jesus would respond to us, I believe, and say, you will never know the value of the eternal until you think eternally. You'll never know the value of that which is eternal until you think eternally. That's why Paul says, set your sights and your minds and your hearts upon heaven so that we'll have an eternal perspective. And then verse 38, I love that verse 38 is an incredibly confident statement. When I return. I love it. That's why we all want to quote Arnold Schwarzenegger when we're going back somewhere and we, we leave. We, I'll be back. You know, I will be back. But notice that Jesus says, when, not if, not if this all works out. And this is before the cross. When I come back, when I'm resurrected, when I'm in glory, when I return with the Father and the angels. And notice that he echoes the same sentiment as the parable of the talents and the parable of the farmer and the tenants. If you want to be my disciple, you cannot be ashamed of me. You cannot be ashamed of who I am. You cannot share in my glory unless you also share in my suffering. That question is on. Check. That question, what about you, uh, comes not only in the uh, confession of Peter when Jesus says, okay, this is what everybody else is saying, what about you? It also comes in the question of what it means to be Jesus' disciple. I have some compassion for Peter, actually, and I get the fact that in retrospect, why didn't he get this, you know, and why does he get this from Jesus, get behind me, Satan, and we're a little bit hard maybe on Peter. I have some, 
I have some compassion for him about where he is at that moment. And it occurred to me that this, this statement of Jesus is very much like if Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or whoever it is that you want to be president is making a speech and t- telling how they're going to change the entire world and then follows it with, and here's how I plan to change the world. The greatest change agents in the world were martyrs. There was St. Peter, and there was Martin Luther King Jr., and there was John F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln. So I plan to go to Washington, D.C. and get shot. Wouldn't you say, if you were a huge fan of that person, like, that's no way to change the world? And that's exactly what they're hearing from Jesus. And not only does he say that, he says... If you want to be on my campaign team to help me change the world, then I want you to wear my new T-shirt here. There it is. Uh, Wait a minute. I don't think we're in the right place here. There we go. So you want to vote for Bob for president? Here's your new T-shirt. You get shot too. And if if all of us will die, then we can change the world. So you say, well, that's crazy. Of course it's crazy, but it sounds crazy to the disciples as well when Jesus says... I'm going to be killed. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And that's how we're going to change the world. And if you want to follow me, then you're going to die too. And unless you die, we can't change the world. So that's what's happening here at Caesarea Philippi with the disciples. So I've been asking myself, okay, I do the the application part of this sermon. What exactly does that look like? And the challenge of what it looks like to follow Jesus is uh, to first of all try to understand these words. So these are Jesus' key words. You must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, you must follow me, you must lose your life for me and for the gospel. So what exactly does that mean? Well, the truth is that all of church history is an effort to find ways to apply this. What does it actually mean to be all in? I'm finishing up uh, in Sunday school today my... uh, Okay, well, let me back up first. This is a, a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and if you want to know more about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, come to my class today, because Dr. Shirley Huffman is going to tell us a little bit more about his story. But when I was reflecting on what it means to follow Jesus in this way, I picked up this book this week, and I read chapter 4, because chapter 4 is where Bonhoeffer himself talks about uh, this passage, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. So I I just thought for a few moments, if I just put a few quotes up here, Bonhoeffer is so much more profound than I am, that maybe Bonhoeffer can help us. Then I'll get back to that other theme in a moment. So a few Bonhoeffer quotes from that chapter. Surprisingly enough, when Jesus begins to unfold this inescapable, inescapable truth to his disciples, he once more sets them free to choose or reject him. If any man would come after me. So we all have that decision to make, right? We have the decision to make over and over again in our lives, but it's your choice. Do you really want to follow Jesus? He sets, he had already called the same disciples at the Sea of Galilee, and they said, we're in. So at this point, when he raises the stakes in terms of what the cost is, he tells them again, if anyone wants to follow me. Another Bonhoeffer quote, self-denial is never just a series of isolated acts of mortification or asceticism. There's a sense when you boil down this, uh, this uh, call to discipleship to one thing, the problem is it's almost like that one thing grows in your life almost like a cancer. It takes over everything else. So if discipleship for you just has sort of one element to it, 
then there's probably a lot of other elements of discipleship that you're overlooking. Each must endure his allotted share of suffering and rejection, but each has a different share. What this cost of discipleship looks like for you may well be different than what it looks like for someone else. Some God deems worthy of the highest form of suffering and gives them the grace of martyrdom. So if you know Bonhoeffer's story, he wrote these words eight years before he himself uh, became a martyr at the hands of the Nazis and was uh, killed just weeks before the final um, freedom for Germany, the victory of the Allies. But he says, some God deems worthy of the highest form of suffering, while others he does not allow to be tempted above that which they are able to bear. And then here's his most famous quote, and it's in this chapter of this book. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. So again, if you're looking at what does this look like in practical level, you just read through what Jesus calls us to do. And every single one of them is a command to say, this is not about me. It is about how I die to self and follow Jesus. Then he gives one very specific example. Uh, He talks a lot in this chapter about forgiveness and how forgiveness is the Christ-like suffering, which it it is the Christian's duty to bear. So if you really want to know what it means to die to self, then think about the people that you would like to not, um, that you would like to not forgive, that you would like to not release from the consequences, obligations, from the repayment of their sins. And Bonhoeffer says that's one of the key ways in which you follow Jesus. But how is the disciple to know what kind of cross is meant for him? He will find out as soon as he begins to follow his Lord and share his life. In other words, you're not told in advance what it looks like to take up your cross and follow Jesus. You take it up, you follow him, and along the way, he will show you the choices that you need to make. So back to my point through church history, there have been so many different ways. Let me get to that screen. So many different ways that the church has said, this is what it means. And if you go through the generations, and this is what we've been doing in my Sunday school class for three months, if you go through the generations, there are so many different ways in which the church has said, in that particular generation, if you're going to follow Jesus, this is what it means. And sometimes it means actually following him to martyrdom. The first Christians were called to include Gentiles because they were Jews. You've got the Crusades on there. The Reformation is very different. Sometimes it's going out in the desert or in the cloister or taking a vow of poverty or chastity or whatever it is. So there are all kinds of different formats. And in the last century, I've noticed that in my lifetime, I I've heard all of these as ways. If you're really going to follow Jesus, this is what it looks like. And the problem, of course, is some of them are self-contradictory. So there are those for whom, uh, for example, being against gay rights is a way to follow Jesus, and those for whom being for gay rights is a way to follow Jesus. There are those who believe that church unity and bringing people together is a way to follow Jesus, and those who believe that separation or church discipline is the best way to follow Jesus. So you've got all these different ideas which we bring into our quest of what exactly does it look like in my life? What choices is Jesus making, asking me to make in order to follow him fully? So, all that to say, I thought, well, how do I illustrate what this life of costly discipleship looks like? Well, I'm going to go to what I've been uh, dealing with over the last few weeks, which is called physical therapy. All right, so I had... Uh, 
uh, surgery on my rotator cuff five weeks ago, and this past Friday I had two appointments, one with my physical therapist and one with my surgeon as follow-up, and I thought there are some real parallels here for what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, I am not saying that physical therapy is my cross to bear. So I don't like it when people use that phrase, like whatever's difficult in my life is my cross to bear. That's not my point. This is simply illustrative for what it means, maybe one angle as you discern where is it that Jesus is calling me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. So lessons from PT on the cost of discipleship. First of all, endurance. This is Paul Stepp. He is my physical torturer when I go over for therapy. And I asked him, what happens if I don't do the therapy? Like, what happens if I just let it go? What do you notice in people that uh, get sloppy about this or end the process too soon? And he said, if you don't stay with it, you live with limited motion. So my motion is getting better and better with this arm. Aren't you impressed? But, and actually, the other day when he measured this, it was better than this, which I thought was pretty cool. So I'm making progress, but if you don't stay with it, and I'm still mostly in the passive motion phase until you get to active motion with your arms, then you wind up with a frozen shoulder. You wind up with complications that go on. Some people have the surgery again, and some people just never can move their arms very well. So endurance is a, is a very critical part of physical therapy. Second, my favorite quote from Paul is, if it doesn't hurt, you're probably not doing it right. Now, the grimace in this picture was posed. It really wasn't that bad. Uh, But I thought the point was great. Like, if you're not pushing yourself to the next level, it's not hurting, then you're probably not doing it right. So a third point, then I went to see my surgeon, Dr. Hurley, and I asked him the question, what is it that actually hurts inside my arm? Uh, And obviously there are a lot of nerves in the tendons that they pull over and reattach to the right side of the shoulder. But I said, what is it? I said, he said, well, we actually rough up your bone. And I said, well, uh, first of all, why do you do that? And second, uh, what's the purpose of that? And why would that hurt? I didn't think bones had any nerves. He said, oh, yes. Bones have nerves. And he said, the reason we rough up your bone when we pull the tendon over it is because the marrow itself, as it comes out of the bone, then acts like a glue that reattaches your tendon. And so we have to do that in order for the uh, tendon to permanently reattach. So the goal of my physical therapy is actually attachment. So hold on to that thought for a minute. And then finally, there's trust. So I showed him this graph from my Fitbit about my uh, disrupted patterns of sleep. This is my heart rate overnight, about two days before I saw Dr. Hurley. And I said, like, you know, what can you do about this? And he said, his answer was, basically, most people who have this surgery live with pain overnight for about eight weeks. And I'm five weeks into it. In other words... Uh, It's to be expected. And then we talk about, you know, different uh, medications to alleviate my pain. And it occurred to me that throughout the process, I've gotten a lot of advice from a lot of people. Some of you, in fact. And some of it contradicts and or replaces the advice that I've gotten from my doctor. And what I typically tell people is, I don't have any reason not to trust what you're telling me, but I also don't have any reason not to trust my doctor. 
And he's the one that I've put my confidence in for the surgery and recovery, so I'm going to do what the doctor says. And if he thinks it's okay to take this medication or that medication, or he thinks it's okay for me to not sleep for a few weeks, then I'm going to trust my doctor. That's why I put myself in his hands in the first place. So all of that leads me to sort of summarize what does it mean, how might the Lord be calling you to discipleship? So just based on that, four questions for whether you're all in with your discipleship. Number one, endurance. Have I decided to follow Jesus? No turning back. You will never understand what discipleship means as long as it's conditional on your part. As long as God is favoring me, if he's doing the right things, if it's easy for me, then I'm going to stay with him. Have I really decided to follow Jesus? No turning back. That's the endurance question. Second, the pain. Do I embrace my suffering as a means to follow closer? Nobody is called to seek suffering. We don't go looking for it. But it comes into all of our lives. And when it comes into our lives, do I say this is a tool that the Lord wants to use to help me to follow him more closely? So the the key word here is do I embrace my suffering? Do I say, Lord, this is something you have brought into my life. I don't understand it. I don't like it. I don't want it. But this is something that you've brought into my life, so at the end of this particular kind of period of suffering in my life, I will follow you more closely. And third, the attachment question. Are my disciplines deepening my intimacy with Jesus? So there's a sense in which this question is results-oriented. So to understand that the purpose of our spiritual disciplines, whatever they are, whichever ones we are engaging in at this moment of life, The purpose of that discipline is a deeper sense of attachment with Jesus. So I'm asking myself, the things that I'm doing right now, and sometimes those spiritual disciplines need to change, right? And that's why at the beginning of Lent, we have this Ash Wednesday service, and a significant part of our service on Wednesday night will be talking about some options for spiritual disciplines and maybe this Lenten season is actually a time to adjust because some disciplines just become so routine that they're no longer drawing me closer to Jesus. So asking the question, what spiritual disciplines are actually deepening my attachment to Jesus? And finally, trust. Is my faith deep enough to give up my rights and all of my stuff? Uh, I could have made that sentence a lot longer, but I wanted it to fit on one line, right? So to give up, to actually voluntarily yield my rights over my time and my money, my relationships, my future, to give up my right to control others, to control uh, circumstances, and, and even to control God. Is my trust really like, I've put all in into the Lord in the same way that Pastor Bob has put all in into one physician and his uh, plan here. I've put all in there. So I do I trust Jesus enough to give up my rights and my stuff. Let's pray together. And just take a moment and uh, you don't have to close your eyes when you pray. You can look at the series of questions if you want and just reflect on them and maybe choose one that the Lord may be speaking to you about today in terms of your willingness to follow him fully, to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow. Lord, you never promised this would be easy. You promised just the opposite, but sometimes it is easier than others. And when it's easier, we pray that you will help us to fill up that tank of strength 
and courage and grace and to look around for those who might need the overflow of our strength at this moment. And when it's hard, we pray that we would confess it, come before you with honesty and vulnerability, share that struggle with others and find the grace we need day by day to allow the pain of this moment to strengthen and bond us to you in a way that the, that the, the relationship, the intimacy will never, ever be broken. We trust you, we look to you, and we thank you for leading us through the cross to home. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.